From the studios of KPCW in Park City, Utah, this is Cool Science Radio. Science and technology, it's interesting, fun, and if we can understand it, well, so will you. I'm John Wells. And I'm Lynn Ware Peak. On August 11, 2021, we spoke with astronaut Mark Vandehei when he was aboard the International Space Station that was 270 miles above our planet, traveling at 17,500 miles per hour. Three months after our interview on November 15, 2021, Russia conducted an anti-satellite missile test that created a dangerous debris field of roughly 1,500 pieces that could have endangered the safety of the seven-member space station crew. Mark is now back on terra firma, and we spoke with him last week about this incident, some other things that happened, and his historic 355 days in space. Oh, looking forward to that. You know, if nothing else, we want to hear about the condition of his knees, his hips, you know, other joints. It's just a fascinating story. So stay tuned for that. Our second guest this morning is Dr. Rama Chalapa, who, along with Eric Nyler, has written, Can We Trust AI? Chalapa is a researcher and innovator with 40 years in the field and recounts the evolution of AI, its current uses, and how it will drive industries and shape lives in the future. After extending the record for the longest single spaceflight in history by an American to 355 days, Vandehei returned to terra firma in March 2022. Mark Vandehei, welcome back to Cool Science Radio. It's good to be back. Thanks for Bill and Willem to spend your time talking to me. Well, we're delighted to have you back, and congratulations on your productive and safe uh, 355-day mission. Uh, knowing you were up there, Lynn and I kept up with uh, with your whereabouts. <laughs> and three months after our ISS interview on November 15, 2021, it was reported in the news that Russia conducted an anti-satellite missile test that created a debris field of roughly 1,500 pieces that could have endangered the safety of you and the other six members of the crew. It must have been a pretty busy morning when you got that wake-up call. What, what, what happened that day? Uh, we got a call telling us to read over a particular procedure and to make sure we understood what everything meant, it's uh, the procedure to isolate all the modules of the space station is not one that I had ever really looked at before, but we certainly get trained on how to close all the hatches. Mm-hmm. But uh, we got that call and I was really impressed. We just had a new crew of four U.S. segment crew members come up on a Dragon vehicle. I, it was certainly within the first two weeks they were there, if not the first week they were there. Oh, and we had just finished talking about when we respond to emergencies. The most important thing we can do is stay very calm and uh, make sure we don't make any mistakes. And if anybody has any questions, we, everybody should feel comfortable asking them. And everybody else needs to try to reinforce that it's okay to ask those questions by being willing to stop and be patient while we try to make sure everyone's caught up. So uh, we all started reading the procedures. I, I had just finished divvying up what parts of the procedure people would execute in parallel. And then uh, I think about four, like with that, maybe four or five minutes later is when I called and said, okay, we need you to execute this. Maybe no, maybe it was 15 minutes or so, but they did tell us all of a sudden that you have to have that procedure executed in what seemed like a pretty short amount of time all of a sudden. So we, uh, we did it. We, uh, I think I was actually the person that got, that was the slowest to finish because, um, one of the hatches took longer than I expected, but it was, uh, that day ended up being kind of nice for me because, 
as a uh, crew member on a Russian spacecraft, I had to make sure there were no hatches closed between me and that spacecraft. So I went over to the Russian segment and I was isolated from the rest of the crew members on the U.S. segment. And I had a really nice long breakfast with my Russian crewmates. Yeah, you know, the most interesting thing that ever happens to me is Lynn will tell me that my mic's not working or something. <laughs> <laughs> to get a call like that, that's uh, that's pretty scary. But you all did a great job. Thank you. <laughs> Mark, you know, speaking of your Russian counterparts up there, I, I think most of us don't really have an idea of what the International Space Station, um, you know, what it looks like on any given day and how many different nations are represented there. We know certainly the U.S. and Russia have have the biggest presence up there, but who else might you find up there on a given day? Well, I, I think the first half of my, my mission probably had the most diverse crew with the uh, the SpaceX's Dragon spacecraft docked there with a crew of four and the Russian Soyuz spacecraft that I was on docked with a crew of three. We had two Russians, three Americans, and one Japanese astronaut and one French astronaut. Wow. So you hold the American record for the amount the number of days spent on any mission, 355. And of course, when you returned on, I think it was March 30th, you know, all the questions that surround you that you probably don't even know the answers to yourself. Like, I cannot imagine being for 355 where there's no for days where there's no gravity and then suddenly you have gravity can you even describe what that feels like? Yeah, it's uh, I don't think it was any worse than my first flight. And I think that's the case because my expectations were well managed before my second flight. The uh, you can't fall over in the space station. So the muscles that used to balance, I think, are the ones we haven't figured out a really good way to keep strong. But otherwise, having spent two and a half hours every day with an intensity level, knowing that I really needed it was super important for me to, to to work out hard during that time so that I would be functional when I got back. I felt like I was I was surprised at how comfortable I did feel when I got back. But uh, just like after the first flight, if I'm standing on one foot trying to tie my shoe, uh, there's a lot of side to side motion that you got to balance. And I those muscles would be complaining after my first flight when I right after hitting the ground as the as the search and rescue forces take us out of the vehicle. I was the last person to come out and the vehicle's so small that you, and when I say the vehicle, I'm talking about the descent module of the Soyuz spacecraft. That descent module is so small that you cannot very easily move out of the capsule, except if you're in the center seat. And then to get from the left or right seat into the center seat, although now I know it's possible because I've, I've done it, you really, we would close the hatch between um, people departing. So the, the commander left from the center seat the person in the right seat left and then they closed the hatch to prep for me to move over to the center seat. And that involved me leaning over with a hatch close so nobody could see. As soon as my head was past the base of my hips, I just collapsed. I fell right over. I just was not used to having to deal with any, any uh, body weight other than inertia as I'm moving around on the space station. So that surprised me. It was, uh, I, my pride was saved a little bit because, uh, no one got to watch that. And by the time the Russians asked me if I was ready, I was sitting vertical again. <laughs> and They pulled me up out of the out of the hatch. So those are the big things. I think uh, doing a, a field test after landing within a couple hours 
I could walk toe heel, toe heel with my eyes open and my arms crossed, but I would step out of that line almost every step. I didn't need anybody to hold me up, but it was, I, I was clear. I, if it was a sobriety test, I wouldn't have passed it, even though it was very sober. When they asked me to do that same test with my eyes closed, as soon as I shut my eyes, I had no idea which way was up. So I was leaning on the, the medical doctor uh, off to my shoulder the entire time I was trying to walk. So that was just ridiculous. Within uh, There's dramatic changes even within the first 24 hours. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we are speaking with Mark Vandehei, who we first met two Augusts ago uh, on the International Space Station, and we're catching up with him today on terra firma. Um, Mark, I wanted to ask you, I certainly wanted to know what's what's it like to be back to your life on Earth, but I'm actually curious, after 355 days, what's it like not to be on the ISS? The ISS is a really strong sense of community where every day you're working as a member of a team. I think, I think it's very much like a military deployment where somebody else is determining something that you know has a very strong sense of purpose. So on the ground, the possibilities are much broader. And I think there's a, a little more stress associated with having to make your own decisions about what you're doing at any given moment. So in a way, it's almost a stress relief on the space station that your day is planned for you. But on the, at the same point, when you're not keeping up with that plan, it, is a, it can be a cause of stress. Because I don't experience a lot of things on the ground that can relate to the way the physics works on the space station, it's there's not anything that triggers a memory of what it feels like to float through the space station. And what I like to tell people is because we're so close to the Earth, the force of gravity on the space station is actually very similar to the force of gravity on the surface of the Earth. The major difference is that the room you're in is literally just falling towards the center of the earth all the time. We're just moving so fast horizontally that we keep missing it. So I don't like to call it a zero gravity environment, um, a, a micro G environment, because if I think of the G forces as the forces that prevent us from falling, like the floor you're standing on pushing back on you, um, it's certainly that type of environment. Because if you type on a keyboard without hooking your feet under something, you'll send yourself to the ceiling. When we spoke to you back in 2021, Shane Kimbrough was in the process of growing some chili peppers. How did that work out? Those chili peppers are really good. In fact, they were quite potent too. My understanding is that the space environment adds a little stress to the peppers and be their reaction to the stress is to get more spicy. And they were quite spicy. Well, I hope you had the toilet hooked up by then. <laughs> we definitely, uh, we have multiple places to uh, defecate to use technical right. terms. But there was a brand new toilet that you were in the process of installing. Uh, yeah, we had that installed. We had a, some, <laughs> I almost said test runs, but yeah, I guess we could call it that. Mark, I was also wondering about what it would be like to come back after being in, like you say, such a structured environment where all of, you know, every minute of your day is sort of planned out for you. And you strike me as sort of a simple guy who just likes... You know, things like, as you mentioned, coming back, the first thing you were looking forward to was to make your wife a cup of coffee and hang out in bed on a Saturday morning. And and then the next thing was to eat some chips and guacamole. And, you know, those strike me as just these these simple kind of creature comforts and and that you would fall back into a, a routine that was really nice. But that was, you know, that was back in March when they were talking to you. How how have you done on sort of the re-entry? 
when we first get back, it just this is the first time this has occurred to me that this is actually probably a benefit. When we first get back, the first month is actually quite structured. There's a lot of you're a, a test subject yourself, so there's a lot of testing of you that is very dependent on having access to you in the especially when you first returned. If you can't really take vacation until a month after you've come back because of all the data that they need to gather. But I certainly have fallen back into those things I enjoy with uh, taking time to spend with my wife and the guacamole and chips. I actually had those on the plane on the way home. <laughs> the uh, One of the NASA doctors, much like the previous flight, got avocados from the United States. They brought them on the plane and he had never made guacamole before, but one of the... Uh, the flight technicians coached them and it was the best guacamole I ever had. And I, I, to the point where someday if he ever decides to start a company and needs, needs a, uh, a spokesperson after I'm no longer a civil servant, I'd be happy to uh, talk about Doc's guac. <laughs> uh, well, I'm with you. That would be one of the things I would, I would definitely go for first. Um, I wanted to ask you, I guess I, I don't know if I have ever seen the International Space Station. I know you can see it with your naked eye and you can identify it because it doesn't blink. So you can see it in the orbit. But I am thinking about you going outside on some starry night with little moon. And I wonder if you look up and see it in the sky. And if so, how does it strike you? It's hard to get your head wrapped around the fact that there's a crew of at least seven typically people that are in that bright dot, which is the second brightest object in the night sky. It's the brightest object after the moon. It's just hard to believe that that, what looks like a pixel going by is got seven human beings in there typically. And there is a, uh, I think it's a NASA website actually called spot the station that you can put your zip code in and sign up for notifications that will tell you where to look and what time. When you went through uh, a whole battery of testing, was your physiological uh, testing results consistent with um, Scott Kelly's as far as bone density and things like that? I can't speak to Scott Kelly's uh, uh, testing because that was all medical information. And I'm mm -hmm. not sure how comfortable, I never got access to it. I didn't ask the questions. Mm -hmm. uh, I did lose 8% of my bone density this flight after having lost 7% of my bone density the previous flight. The good news is that I gained all 7% back before the second flight. And I expect within a couple of years to get all the bone density back again. It does. There's there are some structural changes. So I think if someone ever, some archaeologist ever looked at my bones in the future, they'd actually be able to tell that I had been in orbit for an extended period. But mm -hmm. otherwise, it's all fine. Sure. And when you hitched a ride home on the Soyuz spacecraft, it was about a month after Russia had attacked Ukraine. And I know you're good friends with the two cosmonauts, but I'm just curious if you ever talk about world events or are there certain things that are off the table? I think for the crew members of mine that weren't part of a crew for a Russian spacecraft, they were much more reluctant to bring that topic up. But I felt like I needed to know where they were and what they were feeling. My initial take was that responses were varied as far as maybe just looking sad about it or feeling like that it was good that they were doing it. I, I do think my impression after having made contact with one of them more recently is there's this, he all, the person that I thought was a little sad about it seemed like he felt like there was so much violence that had been going on before Russia invaded that Russia needed to do something about it, which really surprised me. 
I, I didn't expect that at all. I, I certainly did not have anything near that perspective. Personally, I feel very sad about it. Um, I, I also, I have seen Russian news about what's going on or what was going on while I was in the space station with the, with uh, bombing Mariupol. And there's, they're showing very convincing footage of a, a very different story than, than we get in the United States. And what I realized is that you can tell a completely different story based on which facts you choose to share. And I think it's really incumbent on all of us as discerning consumers to try to look for things that are contrary to what we believe to try to really get the full story. Now, yeah. I, I also do believe that we have a media system in the United States that I don't think Russia has. And based on even me observing in Russia, I don't think their media has the type of criticism of their government that you so frequently find in the United States. So we have opportunities within the United States to to check for uh, competing viewpoints, at least for domestic politics. Um, international relations wise, it might be a little harder, but uh, we certainly have access to those things very readily. It's just, it's just a challenging thing. It's really, I know a lot of really intelligent people that uh, have very different opinions on world, the world situation based on where they get their news information from. That's right. It's it really uh, hits home when you're spending when you when you're in such close quarters with like the two um, Anton and Piotr. I can't pronounce their last names, but, you know, you spent a lot of time with them and you were in very close quarters. And there are a bunch of pictures of you with them as though you are all one big crew instead of, you know, separate crews. So it must be. It must be sort of a bittersweet thing in a, in a way or a hard pill to swallow to understand all of that, you know, so far away. I wanted to ask you, Russia plans to pull out of or or has said that it plans to pull out of the ISS by 2024. Is this connected somehow to maybe how Russia has been looked upon very unfavorably by the rest of the world recently? My impression is it goes back and forth so frequently with Russia that I would I wouldn't I'm not sure how to feel about that statement. It could change so quickly to something later on. We, it's that's a tough call. It's a tough uh, tough to know. The Russians are also very good negotiators, and and uh, if I think if making that statement is going to help the negotiating position with something else, I think they wouldn't hesitate to make them. And we honestly, that's what negotiators do sometimes. So make it clear what the consequences could be if you don't give us some advantage. Right. When you were in the Soyuz coming down, um, returning to Kazakhstan, where it landed, um, which I'm curious about why they decide to land on land versus water, what goes into that. But you talked about a couple parts that you were kind of pretty scared of and you didn't realize that you were scared until you were right in the midst of it. Yeah. So first about why they land in on the land. So Russia, for orbital mechanics purposes, it makes a lot more sense to launch closer to the equator. And the places that the, Soviet, the former Soviet Union had access to was along their southern border, which Kazakhstan was part of that. So that's why Kazakhstan was a good place for launching from. And then landing in the ocean, it's, we have such good access to the ocean with, with a huge Atlantic and Pacific coast in the United States. Russia doesn't have, their, their primary coast is the Arctic Ocean, so it, that's not so good to try to land things on. And plus, we don't launch at the altitude that would 
would give us access to that far north. Now, as far as surprises, when the deorbit burns complete and you're no longer in the ball of flame that that you're inside of because of the atmosphere burning the heat shield away as all that friction generates heat. There's a long pause while you, remember I mentioned you're falling all the time on the space station. It's that is as if eventually you normalize that, but really it would be just like you're falling. So when we were falling inside the Soyuz, that doesn't feel alarming. What's concerning is that this time we're going to hit the land and you know, <laughs> and it feel it felt like a very long wait before the parachute opened. And there's not a lot to distract you. You just sit there and wait for on the order of minutes. And it's a very quiet time. <laughs> and then when the parachute opens, it's quite violent. It's not connected symmetrically. So the spacecraft will start to oscillate side to side. And um, you have to kind of hold your arms tight to your body so you don't smack your crewmates in the face. And I only realized how stressed I was when I realized how giddy, giddily happy I was when the parachute actually opened. So there was that. And then you can't see the ground coming. You know you're going to survive it now that the parachute's open. After my first flight, I was hypersensitive to how hard we hit. And so I was really braced for a really hard impact, so much so that when we hit, I thought, oh, that wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Whereas the first time I was actually felt mad because it felt like I was so shocked that we would hit the ground that hard. Well, the impact was uh was pretty good. I, I I took a look at a video, and of course, there's one shoot versus Artemis that came down uh, Sunday. Had three shoots. It seemed to be a little bit more stable. Plus, you know, one thing could fail versus you've got three shoots. You've got two backup shoots, but uh, it looked like you hit pretty hard. And uh, I wanted to mention that Lynn and I have been talking to people at NASA and Northrop Grumman, Charlie Precord, who's one heck of an astronaut mm -hmm. uh, on the solid fuel booster. And I, I spent some time with him and went out and, and to one of the tests that they did. The SLS, the Space Launch System, seemed to perform really well uh, November 16th. And the craft, uh, I mean, all the all the information that I've heard was that it was just a real successful mission. What, uh, what are your thoughts on that? I absolutely agree with that. The primary... The primary objective among many was to test that heat shield because we sent that spacecraft farther away than we've ever spent a human sent a human rated spacecraft. So that means it came back at a higher speed into the atmosphere than we've ever had a human rated spacecraft return. Of course, we wanted to test it without people inside. And it, to my understanding, it was a very successful test. So Mark Vandehei, uh returned in March of 2022 after 355 days in space. Mark, we want to thank you so much for joining us on Cool Science Radio, and we wish you and your family a very happy holidays. John and Lynn, it was really a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for doing this again, and I hope you all have a very wonderful holiday as well. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Mark. Our guest is Dr. Rama Shalapa, who, along with Eric Neeler, has written Can We Trust AI? Shalapa, a researcher and innovator with 40 years in the field, recounts the evolution of artificial intelligence, its current uses, and how it will drive industries and shape lives in the future. Rama Shalapa, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Thank you, uh, Mr. Wells, and happy to I'm happy to be on your show.
Oh, you're very welcome. We're delighted to have you. And, you know, there's some uh, books on AI out there that leave the reader with the feeling of after you finish reading the book, when are the robots coming for me and my family? And uh, what I like about your book and and Lynn as well uh, is that it's a it's a balanced report on the benefits today and how it's going to help us in the future, along with possible misuse and biased algorithms and those sorts of things that we need to be thinking about. So so I appreciate that. And you also included a bit of history on AI. Maybe you can start with telling us uh, the history of AI. Where where did it first show up? Yeah, I think uh, there was a summer workshop at Dartmouth in 1956, and some of the best minds in the country assembled there to figure out what this new technology is all about. And I think uh, AI is typically, you know, was born, uh, you know, that summer. Um, and, uh, you know, in the early days, the emphasis was on writing programs that would play games, you know, checkers and chess and so forth. As you know, eventually a computer defeated the grandmaster, Kasparov, um, and, and so on. And uh, the emphasis was on using, using logic, logical reasoning, and rule-based systems. That was going on for almost 10, 12 years. And then around uh, mid to late 70s, um, AI got some bad rap. I think the thing about AI, everybody expects it to do everything. And it just wants uh, you to wake you up in the morning, make coffee for you, make breakfast for you, and read a story for you, and do all the stuff for you. And it kind of, you know, it's always not able to deliver everything we expected of it. So there was an AI winter. Uh, and then mid-80s, uh, we had a different type of AI came into picture, the AI that explained causal relationships among various entities and, and uh, provided uncertainty reasoning, just, uh, thanks to the work of Professor Julia Pearl and others. And then since 2012, it has taken a slightly different uh, turn. It started mining a lot of data. It started learning from data. We started as a domain experts uh, you know in the early days and now we have swung the pendulum uh, almost to the extreme of uh, whatever we can learn from data right so that's where it is and uh, the, some of the application areas natural language processing computer vision etc have seen reasonable progress in, in in what we are doing because we are able to mine uh, data and make informed decisions so that's where the ai is and my hope is a domain and data will work together very soon so we can be uh, producing more resilient robust ai systems right if you take for yeah. example medicine if you say domain is not important you're saying doctors are not important that's not the case it's not just the data you know the domain knowledge is also important to provide context and so forth so I think it's already happening in few places, and I think more and more of that will happen. Yeah. And if you could just maybe pick a couple of examples of some of the basic and simple ways that we use AI today and may not even be aware of it. Yeah, that's a great question. I think I like to tell people AI is like oxygen. It's kind of there now. We are breathing it. Uh, I would say recommender systems, uh, simple examples of AI. If you buy a book in Amazon, you know, Amazon... Uh, tells you about other books you may be interested in and and same with netflix movies and uh, 
I was on a show with uh, Mr. Gary Guita as part of Hopkins at Home series, and he he co-wrote the uh, the movie script Rogue One, the Star Wars story. And he was saying how he was just having a casual conversation in his house about buying a new mattress, and next time when he logs into the computer, <laughs> all these things from you know various mattress companies. He said that kind of <laughs> freaked him out. <laughs> I said, well, Alexa is there, uh, you know, and Alexa, Siri, they are all examples of uh, you know speech recognition, natural language processing, which is a discipline of AI and computer vision, which is another great application area. That's my major research area, uh, has helped us to provide all these additional safety features in cars, right? You see those red triangles in the left and the right uh, yeah. side view mirrors saying there are cars here and there. Or if my car thinks I'm going to hit the car in front of me, it gives me an alert. And uh, there are cars where if you go to the next lane without the turn signal, it'll bring you back saying, no, no, you can't do that. <laughs> so all of these are applications of AI. And uh, even in medicine, we are seeing at least about 120 or so licenses have been given by FDA. The classic example is the diabetic retinopathy and so on. So um, yeah, so it's kind of there uh, in, in many recommended systems and in our conversations with iPhones and uh, as sure. well as uh, autonomous driving cars. Yeah. Thank you. Well, Rama, considering that you have been in the industry now for 40 years, which is really incredible, it seems like, you know, many worlds have passed before your eyes in terms of phases of AI. I remember even as long as John and I have been hosting this show, Cool Science Radio, I think it was about 10 years ago, the first time that <laughs> that we talked on air about how he had been near someone with his phone. And then suddenly, um, you know, moments later, he got a, a recommendation for who he might ha be have as a friend on Facebook. And these, these sorts of things that are allowing algorithms to, you know, what, what seemed in the beginning, you know, sort of very scary and an infringement of privacy. But as you have said, you know, so many areas, healthcare, Especially, we we talk to a lot of people in that work in uh, healthcare technology, and maybe you could explain what's most exciting. And that, to me, it's this thing called precision medicine, just being able to diagnose and yes, really yes. pinpoint treatment. How yeah. has that come around? Oh, oh, that's that's a great uh, question and observation, I, and that's how what I actually tell people when AI. Uh, what AI means to medicine, because my data, my EHRs, my electronic health records, my diagnostic images, even private conversations I have had with my doctor over the years can all be kept in some place, in a safe place, and then AI can look at it and kind of, you know, keep a watch on what's, what's happening, right? Um, you know, uh, doctors are overworked. I have two kids who are doctors, and, and you know, um, and, and so this will be a great... Uh, uh, help to them. Like doctors have physician, you know, physician assistants, they are called, right? Mm -hmm. They kind of help out. AI is a software agent that will be there looking and, and providing potential uh, things that they may be looking for. I think that's definitely possible. And uh, so th that's where I think AI can do good, right? Uh, for example, we have a five-year project. We are already finished one year uh, at Hopkins. Uh, 
I have the pleasure of working with two world-renowned geriatric physicians, Dr. Jeremy Walston and Dr. Peter Aberdeer. We have a joint project from National Institute of Aging and, uh, you know, it talks about how AI and related technologies can be useful for healthy aging. You know, people may like to stay in their homes much longer, as much longer as possible instead of going to nursing homes and so on. So there are sensors, wearable sensors, gait uh, measurement devices, mounted sensors that can keep track of their activities uh, and so on. You know, we, we, we have heard people say, you know, he seems to have lost, he or she seems to have lost a step. So, you know, how the gait changes is a good indication. How the posture changes, uh, is there more tendency to fall, there are sensors that can, you know, alert and things like that. And so uh, these are things that are doable, even simple things like reminding, you know, elderly people to take their medications on time or not sit on the couch and don't watch TV for more than a certain amount of time. All I tell people is that general nudging, you know, some people with diabetes, for example, you know, uh, they they have to monitor their their sugar. They have to monitor what they eat and so forth. So, if they are tempted to eat something that the system thinks is not healthy for them, based on what it thinks as uh, you know recent blood sugar is, it'll tell them maybe no wait and maybe later maybe tomorrow. So I think these simple uh, uh, nudges, simple hints. Uh, I think people listen. You know, people. You know, we, 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 nobody wants to be unhealthy. Right. But sometimes we give in to our temptation. And if there's somebody who comes in, you know, don't do that, maybe tomorrow. I think we'll listen to it and it, it's good. So AI can can do all these goody things for, for uh, people at, at, across all. In fact, I even, uh, you know, talk about, not in this book, but I mentioned how it can help, uh, you know, educate uh, people, children, right? For example, at one meeting, somebody asked me, what is your moonshot? This was years ago. I said, uh, my moonshot will be one physical teacher and 30 virtual teachers in the class because every student is slightly different. And one teacher cannot teach everybody the same way. What happens is a teacher usually tends to teach in the middle. And then the kids who are left behind and then there are kids who are far advanced and they, they don't get served. So maybe we can, you know, think of 30 avatars, you know, and sitting there and, and following, you know, what you do and help you and so forth. So, and, and then people with visual disabilities, hearing disabilities, AI can kind of be there for all of these things. Yes. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're speaking with Dr. Rama Chalapa. He is a researcher and innovator. He's been working with AI for four decades. He's written a new book called Can We Trust AI? And presenting to us the the upsides and the downsides of AI. And I just have to tell you this story, something ha that happened to me several weeks ago. One of the things that we all, not all of us, my parents don't rely on it, but most of us use maps. Uh, some type, you know, Google, Google <laughs> maps is what I use. And yeah. I can't imagine a time where it where I wasn't given the right option in terms of which which route has more traffic. And we we come have come to rely on it so much. Yeah. yeah. My my husband and I two weeks ago drove far down into Mexico. We found that Google Maps doesn't work so well here. That's right. or there's something going on and it redirected us to this road that was, it turned out was not even a road. The premise was correct, was that there was this horrible road construction that made us, you know, delayed by an hour or so. And so it wanted to reroute us, which was lovely, 
but the road was not a road. There was no one on it. We ended up staying on the main road and sitting through. And, and we laughed about that, that how the technology and the AI has gotten so good with Google Maps in places like the United States. And it, it's a reminder of how far it has still to go. And I think, I mean, as consumers, how do we look yeah. at those kinds of things? Oh, it's there's a technical term for it that we worry about. And I've been working on this problem for more than a decade. It's called domain shift. What will AI work everywhere? Now, if AI is based on data, and, and it depends on what kind of data it gets, right? If, if uh, the data is not good, it's not going to work effectively. So my thing is, a Tesla that uh, works beautifully in, in, in Indiana will have difficulties probably in Hong Kong and in, in London and in Mumbai and so forth. And in London and, and Mumbai, they even drive the other way. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think uh, that's a great challenge. That's because... Uh, we have moved away from domain knowledge. Now, if the Google kind of somehow knows that, that some places will not have that much of, uh, you know, nice connectivity and this and that, and then it will put less probability, it may just tell you, hey, I think this may be a better option, but I'm not so sure. So that's very important in uncertainty reasoning. AI, it's not important. It's not just enough it gives decisions. It should also be able to give how confident that decision is. But the, what I like to tell you is that we have become so uh, dependent on these things and we think they're always going to work. Now, that is one of the issues in terms of trustworthiness. There's, it's not clear that it's always going to work, for example. But think that is one uh, downside. But the upside, in the 80s, when I had to go around Los Angeles, I'd have this thick map and you have to go from page 48 to 40, 52 to 53. The road goes forever. And then you have to keep track of it. And you need somebody by your side. You can't be driving and flipping the pages. <laughs> right? So compared to that, where we are today within U.S., yeah. you know, it's great. So but even, better. yeah, even then, in the early days, sometimes Google will send you by a lake, you know, say, okay, you can go. I said, yeah, but my car doesn't, it's not a boat. <laughs> it used to do, <laughs> so there'll be big water and then you, how are you supposed to do? So the errors, you know, in positioning, right? It was there, but they have improved. Uh, I tell you, even when I leave every day from home to Hopkins, I put my map on because it's very comforting to me. It's kind of tells me what's happening. If there is a traffic, you know, you don't get annoyed. It's uh, the yellow, orange comes, the red comes, and then you know when the red is going to end, before we didn't know. Suddenly there is a red for two miles and then it's all blue. You can see it in the map. So then you say, okay, you know, chill out. So it's going to be fine. So I, I see all of those nice things that we didn't have before. But with AI, it's a curse for AI. It, everybody wants AI to be perfect. I say there's no technology that is perfect. Technology is an evolving thing. It, it's going to make mistakes. And then we go to the boardroom, we fix it, we bring it back. Aren't we still getting patches from Microsoft and Apple, et cetera, et cetera, <laughs> ever so often? Uh-oh, we found this loophole, so maybe you have to update your software. So, you know, that's just the nature of uh, this, this uh, computer software things. And uh, Rama, how how might AI be misused in the future? And, and what are some of the key ethical challenges that we need to start thinking about? Yeah, yeah. I think AI is, is being used now <laughs> in a bad way, you know, misinformation and deep fakes. 
Uh, and there's an article I read by two attorneys, how deep fake could be a real threat to democracy and so on. And, you know, we are already seeing some evidences of that in various uh, situations. So uh, the reason is, uh, you know, is that, but I also tell my students, it's not AI is doing this, it's the people who are misusing AI. So we, we should always remember that technology most of the time can be put to good use, but in a, if people find a way to make bad use of it, uh, then it's a problem. I mean, credit cards are great convenience for us, but there are also people who hack into your credit cards and do stuff. So, um, you know, that's, that's an issue. Uh, we already see that, but there are programs. For example, DARPA has had a program known as uh, Media Forensics. Now they have a semantic forensics and I'm involved in both of those. Uh, develop ways for identifying when uh, information is, is incorrect, is misinformation. For example, if you have a an image and a text that goes with it, if one of the modalities has been messed with, we can find out the inconsistencies between these two modalities and alert and so on. But as in any case, this is a cat and mouse game, cybersecurity, that the attacks are a lot easier to do than you know defending them. So there is a lag here, but you know people are working on it. As far as ethical considerations, I will worry about how the data is collected uh, and, and I will also worry about whether the last functions we use for training the AI systems are appropriate or do they produce any bias. A classic example is the 2018 face recognition gender classification report from MIT that showed at least three then existing commercial face recognition systems did not perform well on faces of dark-skinned males and females compared to light-skinned males and females, and it caused concern. So the, one of the company's uh, software was pretty much tagged on this issue. They went and improved it and reduced the bias and so on. Now that has now morphed into an AI bias issue, right? So can AI, is, is AI biased? Now, the way I like to respond to that is it's after all an algorithm. I can probe it. I can give bad examples. I can give this, I can give that, and kind of see where it fails. I can establish performance corridors, as we call them. And also when we provide software, we are able to say when it will fail, when it won't work, when we think it's not reliable. Like just like in the case of drugs, you know, if you watch TV, they talk about a drug and there are 10 other things that the drug can cause, <laughs> right? Bad things, right? If, if, if you take this drug, sometimes it looks like the side effects are worse than the original problem. So we can provide those kinds of alerts and so on, you know. So that to me, uh, privacy is also a concern that we should be worried about. So how the data, so bias is an issue and privacy. There are four things I talk about in my talks, four fearsome elephants in the AI room. One is the domain shift, just we talked about it early on. It worked here, but the Google map did not work in uh, Mexico at some place. Second one is adversarial robustness. Somebody can hack into your AI system. How do you protect that? And there is a lot of work going on. Third is the bias issue. You cannot introduce a, a technology to a society that doesn't serve everybody equally well. You know, if you think this is going to affect some people, then we have to fix it. Then, then only the technology, you know, gains acceptance. The fourth one is the privacy. Now, when it comes to privacy, you know, I mentioned to you what <laughs> Gary told me about uh, buying a mattress and then getting all these uh, commercials. It happens to me. I mean, I, I go on Google for something immediately, the whole bunch comes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fine. Now, in terms of privacy, we all have to understand. When I go to supermarket, I give my phone number. 
because I they have something called bonus card or something. Because I get a dollar of strawberries, two dollars of shaving cartridges. I know exactly what I'm giving, what I'm gaining. So we have to be smart consumers from now on. We cannot assume that anytime you give something that it won't be shared. You cannot assume that. So, but you have to think, what do I give and what do I get? Yeah. Okay. So that is very important. So basically, uh, you know, we, we are we are giving a lot of things away. My grocery store knows everything I buy. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, they say, oh, because I can send you targeted coupons. Yeah. Yes. But I don't know who else is getting, getting that. Yes. But I take that risk. But I may not give you my credit card number though, right? That's right. not good. So we have to be aware and we have to be proactive and understand that is just the way it is now. You know, Rama, that brings up a good point that I had wanted to ask you. What are those little simple things that you avoid? I mean, now that you're talking about get having the bonus card at the grocery store, it makes me think, yeah, why do we why do we do that when you can just ask the cashier, oh, can I just borrow your card to get the sale price or whatever it is? It does seem ridiculous. Can you give us a few quick examples? We're almost out of time of other things like that, that just as simple, simple things as consumers we can avoid. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, we have to look at the privacy policy in, in terms of what, what uh, you know, who gets to share. In fact, you know, we have Google Mail, Gmail, it kind of knows a lot more things about it, even suggests things that you, you know, you can put in your email. I mean, it reads your email kind of, right? That's what it suggests what the next word can be. And so those, some of them are good. I think I won't, uh, you know, put my face everywhere, uh, you know, like Facebook and things. I, I have a Facebook just for you know, fun to see how it's working. I rarely say anything. I just say yes, I like or something like that. And very rarely I post anything. And long time ago, my my son told me, "Don't say anything on Facebook." Right? <laughs> okay, fine. Anyway, so you have to be careful in terms of how many platforms you are on. But young people these days are not that concerned. I think we are more concerned about privacy. Young people, you know, I have not, I see once in a while TikTok things that they show on TV. I don't have a TikTok account. I don't have a Twitter account. Only Facebook I have just to understand how the social media works. So I'm kind of careful. So we have to be, you know, careful. Um, It it is very tempting, you know, uh, to be just be, uh, you know, like gregarious. Uh, So basically, what is the the equivalent of what we are doing in social platform? Some people are basically very gregarious. They have to go and hand sh- shake their hands with everybody and slap the back and talk and have a drink. And some people are not that gregarious. So the gregarious versions have now morphed into playing active uh, things on social platform and so on. Yeah. But if you are very gregarious, you are very noisy. People know you and they make opinions about you. If you are less, then people don't know and they can't really manipulate you. So it's just basically social platforms have made the gregarious personality, you know, reach out a lot more space. That's all. So we have to be careful about what information uh, we give out. And if you don't have to, like you get a phone call, sometimes you'll get fake, uh, you know, things on your cell phone, right? Yeah. They're saying, hey, you bought something and on the credit card, is it you or give us a call? No, no fishing things, none of that stuff, right? You have to be careful. Well, that is refreshing. The son telling the father to uh, be careful about his exposure on Facebook. I'm, I, I like that. Dr. Rama Shalapa, who along with Eric Neeler has written, Can We Trust AI? 
and Rama, it's, this has been a good conversation. We'd love to have you back at some point. We wish you success with your book. And thanks for joining us on Cool Science Radio. Yeah. Thank you, John. Thank you, Lynn. And thanks for having me on your show. I enjoyed it.